0: well this morning we are going to take a bit of a hiatus from our study in the book of Acts and uh, I'll be doing more of a topical study today but one of the things one of the things that has stood out to me as we've been going through the book of Acts and I've mentioned it a few times I, I and um, maybe it's something that you've also seen as well. And, and that is in the sermons in the book of Acts. One of the, the, the central themes of the sermons in the book of Acts is the priority of the resurrection. How Uh, Peter and whether it be Peter or Paul or others, when they're speaking about and speaking to others about Christ and what's going on, um, they always give priority to the resurrection. I gave you some uh, some references in your sermon notes. So on Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost, he talks about the resurrection and um, whether it be in chapter two or chapter three, chapter four, all of these sermons, Peter talks about the priority, how central. Uh, the resurrection is to the gospel message that he is preaching. And we see, of course, uh, Paul in his great message on Mars Hill. What does he do? He brings up the resurrection. And so um, the resurrection, then, is a central theme to the early church's sermons, the the early church's preaching centered or focused on the resurrection. So one of the things I I want to do today, this is going to be basically uh, the sermon is going to be divided, I think, into two neat uh, topics. And the first one I want to deal with then is dealing with the necessity of the resurrection. Since we see the resurrection being central to early preaching, we have to ask ourselves why? Why was the resurrection so central to the early church's theology? Why is it central to the Christian faith? Now, many people have noted, and I think rightly so, that without the resurrection, the the, the Christian faith collapses. It is that... <laughs> That one Jenga piece that when you pull out, everything else falls down. Without the resurrection, the Christian faith is severely compromised and perhaps even completely falls apart. So it is central. I want to talk a little bit about the necessity of the resurrection. I want to warn you just real briefly. This first part is going to, at some places, is going to be somewhat theological. Theological. If you are new here, this may be something new to you. For those of you who come to church on around a place on a regular basis, you are not surprised at all by the fact that we will have some sort of theological um, discussion or uh, words regarding Whatever topic it is we're teaching about because eventually what I want to deal with is I want to deal with the blessings and the fruit of the resurrection. But we need to first build a foundation. We need to build a theological foundation on which we then can build the hope and the blessings of the resurrection. So um, this will prepare us by building this theological foundation. We then can be prepared for the second part of the sermon. And that's going to be dealing with the blessings or the fruit of the resurrection, Because um, the resurrection is much more than cold theological dogma to be uh, appreciated only by scholars in their ivory tower. But rather, the resurrection produces tangible, real benefits to the recipient of Christ's saving work. So we want to build this foundation and then from there um, look at What are the benefits? What are the blessings of these theological truths? The truth, uh, the truths of the resurrection for us should bring joy. It should help us to have a stable, unwavering faith. And regardless of the intensity of the storm or the nature of the storm, we should be able to stand firm and solid in our faith, not only because we understand the principle of the necessity of the resurrection, but because we understand that and we recognize the fruits and the blessings of the resurrection, we can endure whatever comes our way. The Bible says that you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. I pray this day when we're done here and we uh, are finished with our Resurrection Sunday service that you will go out with joy and you will be led forth with peace, that you will carry these truths so that when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, you will be able to hang on to these truths, whether it be tomorrow or the next day or the next week or a year from now or 10 years from now, you will have these truths firmly planted in your soul. And you can grasp that at any time. My hope today is to ground your faith in what God has done for us. And by knowing those things, by being grounded there, we will, that will foster a joy in the blessings that overflow to us because of what Christ has done. Another goal I hope to accomplish then will be is that if you are not a believer in Christ and you're just kind of exploring the claims of Christ. That you would consider his claims. And I pray that today you would be convicted by the Holy Spirit and that you would call upon his name and that you would call upon him to have mercy upon you leading to salvation. So I hope to to encourage you today. I hope to strengthen you. I hope to give you some things to think about. I hope that you are convicted by the Holy Spirit and moved along to uh, salvation. <coughs> To growth in Christ. So let's begin with the necessity of salvation. The necessity of salvation. I'm going to begin this particular um, topic with uh, looking at Mark chapter 8 verse 31. Because in Mark chapter 8 verse 31, um, we learn something very uh, important. Where Mark is recording some some of the teachings of Jesus and this is what he says he says and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after 3 days rise again now i want to focus there's there's a lot there but what i want to focus on that little verb must it is necessary Now, in this particular verse, there are a number of things that are necessary, that Christ must suffer, that Christ must die. I'm going to focus on the idea that Mark tells us, that Jesus teaches it was necessary for him to be raised from the dead. So Jesus says, I must be raised from the dead. I must be resurrected. It is a necessity. So we go from that imperative, that very strong statement of Christ, that it is necessary that the resurrection takes, takes place. And I want to then maybe address a few issues on why it is necessary. Why is it necessary that Christ raised from the dead? We're going to hear a lot of sermons today. There's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of sermons going out today. I hope that, that they are all Christ honoring and Christ glorifying, I just don't want to assume that we understand the necessity of the resurrection. So I'm going to give three necessities of the resurrection. I'm sure there's a lot more. Books can be written on this topic, but I'm going to, for our sake, deal with three. And I hope that they will suffice. And the first necessity, the first reason that Christ must rise from the dead is that the, it dem- the resurrection demonstrates or shows or proves that the death of Christ accomplished God's intended purposes. That the death of Christ actually accomplished what it was supposed to do. So we see a lot of reasons why Christ came, but one of the reasons we see in First Timothy one is that Christ came to save sinners, the, and the resurrection is put forth as proof that that purpose was actually accomplished. If you will, turn with me to Romans chapter four verse twenty five. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. This perhaps was a very early Christian creed. And uh, speaking of, of Christ, verse 25 says this, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That is, Christ paid for sin at his crucifixion. That payment was accepted and it resulted in a not guilty verdict from the highest court in the universe. In other words, the resurrection is a demonstration that the payment for sins was accepted, received, and found as, being, as sins being paid in full. I like uh, uh, the way Charlie, who, who gave us our, our earlier prayers when he was teaching through the book, of Romans, I think he put it this way, and i don 't want to misquote Charlie, um, but I think he would say something to the effect that at Calvary on Friday, sins were paid for, and on Sunday, the funds cleared. The resurrection shows that the payment was accepted, and the payment price was paid in full. He was raised for he paid our sins on the cross and our and we were justified, declared not guilty, on Sunday. The resurrection then um, is evidence that the payment of sin was accepted. Christ's perfect, holy sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God on the cross on Friday, was a sufficient payment. And when he said, when Christ breathed his last and said, it is finished. It truly was finished. Our sins are paid for. And the fact that death could not hold him is evidence that the payment was sufficient. What I hope to... I don't want to give the impression... And I want to push back against any idea that the death of Christ on the cross was a mere example, a good example of what it means to give one's life as in self-sacrifice for, uh, for the good of others. I, I believe that his sacrifice was a good example. But it did more than provide a good example. His death Pay the penalty of our sins and His resurrection demonstrates that that payment was sufficient. You see, the resurrection was necessary to change our status. Our sins are forgiven. And by the resurrection, our status before God is changed. We go from guilty to not guilty. That's the whole meaning of justification. Justification is a forensic term. It's a legal term. It means to where the judge declares you not guilty And the resurrection was necessary to change us from sinners to saints. In other words, his death was more than just some good example or it was more than just a moral influence or, as some might even say, some huge mistake. No, the resurrection of Christ proves or demonstrates or is necessary to demonstrate that that God's purposes in Christ were fulfilled. The second area of under the idea of the necessity of the resurrection is that the the resurrection affirms that the words of Christ are true. Now, one of the things that Jesus spoke clearly about is that he was the son of God. And this was a claim for which the Pharisees in John chapter 19, verse 7, sought to kill him. He claimed to be the son of God. They they wanted to kill him because they said he claims to be the son of God. And therefore he makes himself equal to God. We need to put him to death. The resurrection demonstrates that the claims of Christ to be the son of God were utterly and completely true. And we only need to go a page or two back in the book of Romans. And Paul's introduction to his letter to the Romans in chapter one, verse four. Where Paul says, speaking of Christ, and says, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. As the Son of God, Jesus has the authority to lay down his life, and he has the authority to take it up again. And Jesus spoke frequently about his his resurrection. As the Son of God, he spoke about his resurrection. Again, saying, I have the authority to lay down my life. I have the authority to take it up again. But he spoke constantly about, I will be raised from the dead. I will be raised from the dead. As the Son of God, he has the authority to, ra- to be raised from the dead. The interesting thing about his claim to resurrection is that... Uh, It is a claim that is falsifiable. What I mean by a falsifiable claim is that a falsifiable claim then is one that an observation can be made to prove it false. So how would you prove the resurrection false? What observation could you make to prove the resurrection false? Well, that's easy. Show me the body. It's just that simple. Show the body. And the whole idea of the resurrection goes away. One of the interesting things about all of the objections to the resurrection is that all of them assume an empty tomb. You can go back to the first century. You can look at all the theories around trying to explain away the resurrection. And there are bunches of them. And I've taught on this before. You know, that Jesus didn't really die, or that, you know, his body was stolen, or people hallucinated, all of these ideas, but the common denominator in all of those arguments is that the tomb was empty. None of them, none of them claim that Jesus remained in the tomb. You see, as a son of God, he had the authority to lay down his life, and he had the the authority to take it up again, which is exactly what he did. Now, this leads us to some very important implications. If this most remarkable claim of Jesus is true, then it follows that we should be able to trust his other claims. In other words, if he can make the absolutely remarkable claim that I will be put to death and in three days rise again from the dead. And then does it. It follows then that other claims by Christ should also be able to be trusted. Christ's. Christ claimed to be the only way to God. Christ claimed to be able to forgive sins. That's an amazing claim. When Jesus says, I can forgive sins. In fact, he was accused. Who is this man who forgives sins? Doesn't he know that only God can forgive sins? Yes, he knows that perfectly. I am the son of God. I am equal to God. I am God and I have the authority to forgive sins. He, has, he claims to give everlasting life. Really? Who has the authority to make a claim like that? Only if he is the son of God. And the resurrection proves that he is the son of God. Jesus also claims that he will return and judge the world, the living and the dead. So the second necessity is, of the resurrection is it proves or demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus being the Son of God there are many other implications then that come with that and then finally the third reason or necessity for Christ rising from the dead is going to be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 through 22 you can go ahead and turn there and and then stay there, because we're going to stay in 1 Corinthians 15 through the remainder of the message. But I put this as that the resurrection, the necessity of the resurrection is that it is a matter of life and death. And now I'm going to ask you to think a little bit with me. I'm not going to expound too much on this, but it will require a little bit of thought. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Stop there. Note what he says. That Christ is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, that is those who have died. And then, for a man, for by a man came death. He's speaking, he's referring to Adam. For by one man, Adam came death. And by one man, Jesus, came eternal life. Our destinies are tied either to Adam or to Christ, who is referred to as the last Adam. So our destinies are tied either to Adam or they are tied to Christ. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. This is an issue that, that Paul brings up quite a bit in the book of Romans. There are two spheres in which we live. we live. We either are in Adam or we are in Christ. Paul divides humanity into two groups. Group number one, in Adam, and you will die. In Christ, and you will live. That's the only two categories of humanity. We are either in Adam, and he picks that theme up again here in 1 Corinthians. You are in Adam, and by him you will die, or you are in Christ, and by him you will live. I have to ask the question it's important the necessity of the resurrection. What good is a dead Christ? It would leave our status completely unchanged. A dead Christ is no better than a dead Adam. It leaves us in the exact same place before his death. Had he died and remained dead, he would have demonstrated that he was under the penalty of death like Adam. And if Christ, our representative, lies in the grave, so do we. Only... If Jesus is freed from the power of death, can we be freed from the power of death? Only if Jesus is declared righteous by his resurrection, sinless, can we be declared righteous. You are in Adam and you will die, or you are in Christ and you will live. You are in Christ and you are righteous, or you are in Adam and you are not righteous. And so this is, a the, the, as we talk about the necessity of the resurrection, it is literally a matter of life and death. So just a brief summary. His resurrection is necessary. He is declared the son of God who is victorious over sin and death and stands as a representative of a new community, a new group of people who share in this victory. Yeah, that's necessary. All right. So we've kind of dealt with the necessity. That's kind of my first major, um, of this message we share in um, or the necessity of the resurrection and now we might be thinking well that's great Christ is glorified he's the son of God he is high and lifted up great does it have any bearing to me is there anything that flows out of that to humanity to, to where I am the way I'm going to address this is I want to address this from first Corinthians chapter fifteen. what Paul does in first Corinth in the section that I'm going to be looking at in first Corinthians chapter fifteen is that Paul um, writes from a negative standpoint that is, if Christ did not die from or did not rise from the dead, then this was would be the circumstances, or this would be the implications. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then all of these things would be a reality. So you can see he writes from a negative standpoint. If this didn't happen, then these are the consequences. And then in verse 20, Paul reverses course. He says, but Christ has been raised from the dead. But Christ has been raised from the dead. So I want to look at those negative implications under um, with the understanding that Christ has been raised from the dead. In other words, if these negative things are true, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then the opposite is true because Christ has risen from the dead. Does that make sense? Or have I just made something simple, really complicated? Let's let's go through. All of this, but Christ has been raised from the dead. I'm not going to take these in order, but I will because I want to put um, the first one is that if Christ, because but Christ has been raised from the dead, therefore your sins have been forgiven. Look at verse 17. Chapter 15, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But Christ has has been raised from the dead, and so you are no longer in your sins. Romans 4.25, again, he was raised for our justification. I want to encourage... You who have called upon the name of the Lord that your sins are forgiven. Paul says that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Everybody listening to this message needs forgiveness. Everybody needs to be reconciled to God. But Paul says because Christ rose from the dead, we are no longer in our sins. This is the first and most basic longing of our hearts that all have sinned. All have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. In Adam, all die. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. And eternal life will be granted to you. So The first one, if Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, our sins are forgiven. And so if you will recognize that, you know what, I've sinned against a holy God. I have done the very opposite of what he wants me to do. I have rebelled against him. What's the most basic commandment? The the first and foremost commandment. What is it? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to just be really bold. None of us have done it. None of us have loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which makes every one of us sinful in the eyes of God, and therefore the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, who has risen from the dead, and hit the life that He now lives, He will impart to you as well. So this is why Jesus came and He said, Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm the king of the kingdom. So I would implore you, you've never called upon the name of the Lord to repent of your sins. Call upon the name of the Lord and he will forgive you of your sins. The second statement that Paul says, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Let me just stop there. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and we have misrepresented God. But Christ has been raised from the dead, and their preaching, the apostles' preaching, is not. In worthless or in vain. And they have not misrepresented God. Christ has been raised. So what the apostles have preached. And what they have represented in regards to God. Is accurate. The apostles are not false witnesses. That what they state. Is certain. It is true. You can bank on it. Now, let me just pause for a moment and mention that in our modern society, perhaps the greatest sin that we can commit in our modern, in our modern society is the sin of certainty. That is to say, that anything is absolutely true. We live in a day of relativism, uh, that truth is situational, it is fluid, it is not fixed. But the apostles are saying, wait a second. Christ has risen from the dead. Our preaching is not empty and we have not misrepresented God. What we have said about God is certain. Folks, the need for truth is a deep need. It's a deep need. Even those who claim that truth is not fixed All are seeking, I mean, when they say truth is not fixed, they're making a truth claim. We all have need for truth. Nobody lives as though truth is situational. Nobody lives actually, they may think that in their mind, but nobody actually lives that out. Nobody can live that out. And the need for truth is deep. Jesus comes along and says, I am the truth. And his resurrection vindicates that claim. It also tells us that the claims of the apostles are true. Jesus did rise from the dead. Therefore, what they teach about Christ and God is true. They have not misrepresented anything. In other words, when they say there is no name under heaven by which men may be saved. That Christ is the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. They're not misrepresenting God. They're not saying something that is empty. What they're saying is Filled with truth and needs to be believed and and clung to. When they say that a person is saved by grace alone, that, that salvation is a gift of God, that we cannot earn it. They are not misrepresenting God and their words are not empty, but they are full What I want you to uh, help you understand today or encourage you in is that when you read your Bibles, you can trust what you read. Why? Because Christ has risen from the dead. Therefore, what the apostles teach is not in vain and they have not misrepresented God. You can believe what you read. That's one of the blessings that flow from the resurrection. I can read God's word with confidence, knowing that what it states is not a misrepresentation of God. What a great blessing that is. Next thing, and we saw this in the same, in in verse 14, Paul says, if Christ um, has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is empty. But Christ has been risen from the dead, so your faith is not empty. Your faith is not worthless. We will not, if you are in Christ, we will not come to the end of our days. We will not lie on our deathbed saying, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And everything is worthless under the sun. I've tried it all. I've sought after wealth and pleasure and power and all of the things and it's proven to be empty. But the believer in Christ and the fruits of that resurrection come and say, wait a second, I don't have to say vanity, vanity, all is vanity. My life is not empty. We can, like Paul in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, Um, basically, I'm ready to be poured out. He's he's awaiting his execution. And he doesn't claim vanity, vanity, all is vanity. He claims this, I've run the race, I've finished the course, and there is now laid up for me a, a, a glory with Christ that is imperishable. This hasn't been a vain, empty life. Paul is saying, man, If I can use a sports illustration, I left it all out on the field. I've run the race. I've finished the course. I left it all out there, and now the best is yet to be enjoyed. (laughs) I've lived a filled, fulfilled, great, great life, and Paul lived for the glory of Christ. And he says, now the best is yet to come. It hasn't been empty. We contrast that with a naturalistic, materialistic worldview that says this is it, and when you die, you're forgotten. There's nothing, you just become worm food. The life that we have has purpose, it has value. Your faith is not empty, it is not void of contest content. Your faith is not mere wishful thinking or some giant leap across a chasm of doubt. Because of the resurrection, which is a historical fact, fact, your faith is on solid ground and your life is lived for the glory of God. And when it's done, you won't say, I lived the, my life for the glory of God, vanity, vanity. No, I lived my life for the glory of God. There was no greater life to be lived. And now I await to live the eternity with Christ, my Lord. Man, what an awesome blessing. What an awesome blessing. Because of the resurrection, your faith is on solid ground. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a life filled with purpose because it is lived for the glory of Christ. The life that I now live, I live by faith. In the Son of God, my faith isn't empty. It isn't vain. It isn't void of content. I live my I, the life I live now. I live by faith in what? In the Son of God, who did what? Who died? Who g- gave Himself for me and died for me? Oh, I've, I've got a full life. I live for the glory of Christ. Another blessing, or benefit the fact of the resurrection or the necessity of the resurrection. And I'm just going to mention this and let you meditate on it. I won't spend much time here. I find this interesting where in verse 19, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has risen. So the opposite is true. We don't need to be most pitied. In fact, the opposite then is that, if anything, our lives should be envied seen as something valuable seen as something worthwhile I'll let you chew on that for a moment the next blessing that comes from the resurrection um, is found in verse 18 then those who have fallen asleep which is just a euphemism for those who have died in Christ have perished if Christ has not been raised from the dead then those who have died in Christ are dead If Christ has not been raised from the dead, those who have died are still in the grave and they're dead. But Christ has been risen from the dead. All those who are in Christ, who is alive, therefore we live. Because Christ lives, we live. We are in Christ and Christ is alive, therefore we live. Jesus said, the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. We live as Christ lives and we enter into the joy of our master. As I said, our destiny is tied to the one whom um, we are aligned with. We are aligned with Adam and in Adam all die or we are aligned with Christ and in Christ all live. And since Christ has been raised from the dead, And it it goes on and says that he is the first fruits of those who have been raised from the dead. And the first fruits was just simply the first part of a harvest. It wasn't the entire harvest. It was only the first part of it. But the first fruit was brought forth in anticipation of the complete harvest coming in. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. Which means he's not the only one who rises from the dead means there will be a great harvest of people who also live because he lives. So, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, but Christ has been raised from the dead, therefore we live. Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is a promise that those who share in Christ will also share in his life. Those are just a few of the necessities and blessings that flow from the resurrection. I will close this message as Paul closes his comments about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And he closes and I close like this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Be steadfast, be immovable, abound in the work of the Lord, and know this, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.